as we reached the year anniversary of the conflict, the war in Ukraine, I was kind of reflecting back upon that, and I came across an article from a year ago, February the 4th, in the New York Times. It said, while Russia is not yet capable of mounting a total invasion of Ukraine, portions of its army have reached full combat strength and appear to be in final stages of readiness for military action. And of course, that happened. We could probably debate how ready they really were based on how they've done. But there, there was another article just a couple of weeks ago in the Associated Press that points out that we as a country weren't really ready either. Ukraine is putting intense pressure on the U.S. and European defense stockpiles and exposing that neither was ready for a major conventional conflict. And that article goes on to talk about military readiness prepared. And it said, U.S. officials say Beijing wants to be ready to invade the self-governing island of Taiwan by 2027. Well, Joshua chapter 5 is also about military readiness, being battle ready. And we would expect that after what Israel has been through, crossing the Jordan River, building that pile of rocks, remembering what God has done for them, we would expect that chapter 5 would be all about their siege of Jericho. In fact, we would especially expect that when we read chapter 5, verse 1. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to those passages, chapter 5, verse 1 says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. You would think this would be the time when God would say, their hearts are melting, they're terrified, attack. I mean, kind of, this could have been the original uh, shock and awe campaign, right? The shock and awe of the Jordan parting, now is the time to take advantage of it. But instead, by God's command, Israel spends at least 10 days before the siege of Jericho begins. Because God knew that Israel was not spiritually ready for the battle. And the truth is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are in a spiritual battle as well. Last year, we looked at the book of Ephesians together, and toward the end of that book, in chapter 6, verse 11, we read, put on the whole armor of God, and we talked about what that was, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And we talked about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, those various things. But here in Joshua chapter 5, we're going to see two more preparations that help to make us battle ready for the spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in. So let's look at chapter 5, and let's pick up the story with verse 2. 
At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. That gives us a picture, thankfully just a picture, of the preparation that you and I need for the spiritual battle that we're in. We need to lay down our self-rule. Being ready for the battle means letting go of self. Letting go of what we think should be happening. But when we do that, it may be costly. Certainly for Israel, it was physically painful. It may mean giving up something. It may mean emotional pain. It may mean risk. It may mean that that dream job, that dream career that you had has to be laid down because God's calling you into missions or into some other kind of ministry. It may mean that you need to lay down self-rule simply because your desire to be married or to have children isn't part of God's plan after all. It may mean laying down your leisure activity because it's becoming too important to you. It may mean laying down your sexual desires because they can't be fulfilled in the way that God prescribes within marriage. God calls on us as his people to lay down our self-rule, our desires, and to follow him. And so God commands Joshua to make flint knives and to circumcise all of the uncircumcised men and boys in Israel, and he does that. And again, that would have been physically painful, but it is really a picture of laying down our own self desires, our own self-rule. The flint knives probably point us back to the fact that this is an ancient ceremony. It's an ancient prescription that God established this with Abraham back in Genesis 17. And we find in this story that the men and the boys that came out of Egypt had been circumcised, but the wilderness generation was not. Look at verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And of course, once you get through all of the verbiage there, the question that I think logically comes to our mind is why hadn't they been circumcised? So hang on to that for just a minute. We're going to come back there and address it. But what I want you to see is when Joshua is told to do this, and in verse 2 it says for a second time, it's probably referring to the fact that it had been done in Egypt, but it hadn't been done since. So now it's a second time. And what is about to happen, what Joshua does, is very, very risky. Because those boys and those men are going to be incapacitated for several days, and they are just right there next to Jericho in the presence of their enemies. You may not remember, some of you may, but I guarantee you Israel remembered 
The story from Genesis 34 when Jacob's sons, Levi and Simeon, talked the people of the town of Shechem into all of their men being circumcised, and then on the third day, they swept in and wiped out the city. And Israel's thinking, if we do this now, we are going to be helpless in the face of our enemies. It's risky. They've got to lay down trusting in themselves. Humanly, it makes no sense. Why incapacitate your army in the face of the enemy? Why not do this before they cross the Jordan? Because God hadn't commanded it yet. Because I think he wanted it to be in the new promised land. God is testing them. But God also provides. Because we already read in verse 1 that the Canaanites are paralyzed by fear. And so nothing happens during this time. But it certainly was risky. Laying down self-rule may be costly, but laying down self-rule also proclaims that we belong to God. The act of circumcision was renouncing, as a picture of renouncing the old way of life for a new way, for God's way. Circumcision was a sign of their relationship with God. It was an outward sign of inward faith that they were supposed to have participated in. But it hadn't happened in the wilderness. Verse 6. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we find out that those men who were 20 and over, when Israel stood on the brink of the land last time at Kadesh Barnea and and listened to the ten ten spies and said, we're not going in, there are giants. Those men, that whole generation, 20 and above, had died off in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Now we have a new generation, but that new generation, none of the men have been circumcised. Why? Well, I've got two options, and the Bible doesn't tell us which one is right. So you can decide which one you want to believe, and when we get to heaven, we can find out which it was. It may be that that was part of their not obeying God. They were in rebellion, and they said, we aren't going to do this. Or it may be that because they were in rebellion, God said to them, don't bother with circumcision. You have violated the covenant. I kind of lean toward that last one, but either one could be right. And the reality is, whichever it is, their lack of circumcision certainly showed the rebellion of their parents. It showed the lack of faith of their parents. It showed the reality that they were self-centered, self-willed, and not following God. In Genesis 17, God had said to Abraham when this was established, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's the status of Israel at this point before Joshua obeys God and follows through with the circumcision. There's an interesting parallel, by the way. If you were to think back to Exodus chapter 4, 
Moses has just been called by God to go to Egypt to set his people free. And Moses is on the way there, but Moses himself had failed to circumcise his own sons. And so God confronts him there, and his sons end up being circumcised. It's almost like a picture of what's going to happen with the whole nation here in Joshua chapter 5. Now a new generation renews their spiritual commitment. A new generation says we're putting away the old way of life to follow God. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place. The very children, by the way, that the Israelites have said, if we try to take Canaan, our children are going to end up dying at the hands of the Canaanites. And God said, no, you will die in the wilderness, but your children will inherit the land. It was their children that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so they called the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means a rolling away. And so God says, I've rolled away the reproach because you've put away your old lives. You've put away the time of wandering and rebellion. You, you have died to self and you've been buried, but you're alive to God. And so I've rolled away the shame, the reproach. You could really translate it the stench of the wilderness failings and Egypt. Earlier we read verses, and you may have noticed that over and over it talked about out of Egypt, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. And I think part of what God is saying here when he says, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt, is that while I took that whole generation out of Egypt, Egypt never came out of them. Remember, every time things got hard, what they said, Oh, we had it so much better in Egypt. We had all the food we wanted. Hey, let's elect a new leader in place of Moses and go back to Egypt. And now God says, not only is this generation out of Egypt, but Egypt is out of them. They are never looking back with longing to Egypt again. God has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Laying down self-rule proclaims that we belong to God. And then it also results in renewed fellowship with God. Because once the circumcision is finished, they now sit down to a meal with God. It's called the Passover, verse 10. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cake and parched grain. They celebrate the Passover, and apparently the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As you read the Old Testament, those two feasts often kind of get intermingled. They sit down for a celebration because they're in fellowship with God. In Exodus chapter 12, they're told, if you are not circumcised as a man, you cannot partake of the Passover. They haven't been in position to celebrate it before this, but now, now they can. Last week, we sat down at the Lord's table together. We celebrated the fact that God has redeemed us through Jesus, and we remembered what he had done for us. Same idea, when we have been redeemed, when our hearts have been changed, then we have the opportunity to fellowship with God. Redemption is the foundation for that fellowship 
Redemption from Egypt, redemption from sin. And now God provides for them in a new way. For 40 years they have wandered in the wilderness and they have eaten manna, God's miraculous provision. But verse 12 tells us, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When I was a kid, I used to think, well, how sad, manna stopped. But that's not the point. The point is, what a blessing. Manna stopped. They can eat the produce of the land now. They're in the land that's flowing with milk and honey where there's abundant provision. And God's still providing. He's just providing through the ordinary means now. Those extraordinary means, God's extraordinary means are always for a temporary period. Now, the temporary period ended up being 40 years But now he is still providing for them through the blessing of the provision in the land. Self-rule, laying that down, results in renewed fellowship with God. So the first preparation, the first thing that we need to do to be battle-ready is to lay down our self-rule, to let go of trying to run our own lives. Many of you may remember the song that was popular several years ago, Jesus, Take the Wheel. Remember the song? Jesus, take the wheel. It's been ripped out of my hands. It's an icy road, but more, I've messed up my life. Jesus, take the wheel. And that's usually the way we do it. God, I'm in a mess. Help. Instead of saying, God, here I am. Please help me 365 days of the year. Please rule my life every day. Help me to follow you instead of my own desires every day. Because you see, another Jesus in the New Testament, that's what Joshua means, Jesus. Another Jesus is our Passover. He is the one who redeemed us, who freed us from sin. He is the one who circumcised our hearts. Paul says this in Colossians 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Jesus circumcised our hearts. He is our Passover lamb. He has forgiven our sins. He has made us so that we can have a right relationship with God. The question is, are we willing to let go of our self-rule, even if it hurts, even if it costs Are we willing to let go of our dreams? And very often that's not all that dramatic. Very often letting go of self-rule simply means that I'm willing to lay down my life for my wife. I'm willing to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm willing to encourage and support and follow my husband. I'm willing to, to get up every morning and go to a job that really isn't all that fulfilling, but I know it's meeting the needs of my family, and that's what God commands. I'm willing to get up and and get the kids ready for school and make their lunches every day. 
even though I don't feel like doing it, because that's what I'm called to do. I'm willing to follow the Lord and be baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ because that's the next command he's given to me. I'm willing to to put down the, the TV remote or the video game controls and talk to my family. I'm willing to lay down self-rule and get involved and serve in people's lives or in the church where I attend. See, much of our culture today wants painless commitment. They want commitment that doesn't cost anything, and that's not real. Jesus says it very pointedly in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, is the concept, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That begins with saying, I know I can't get to heaven on my own. I need to trust what Jesus has done and quit trying to earn salvation. And it continues on by daily saying, Jesus, here's my life. You lead me, you guide me, you rule me, even if it costs me something because it's the only way I will live in fellowship with you. Lay down self-rule. The second preparation is humbly submit to God's plans. Being ready for the battle involves releasing control And you might be thinking, that sounds a lot like point one. Yes, it does, because it's really kind of the theme of the whole chapter, even as we enter into a different part of the story, beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, we have a scene that that hits some of the same themes, but begins by reminding us that God is with us in our battles. The coming battle for Jericho is a critical battle. Not only was it the first one in the land, and so it's going to kind of set the tone, but Jericho sat at the entrance to the the main passageway into the land that would allow the Israelites to really divide the land into north and south and then deal with north and south separately. It was a critical battle that was coming. And Joshua, as he faces that critical time, certainly needs encouragement. I always wonder if, as he's going through some of these circumstances, he didn't really, really miss Moses and wish that he could talk to him again. There would have been, after chapters 3 and 4 and the dramatic crossing of the Jordan, there would have been a natural letdown. And now they're facing this monumental task of taking Jericho. In fact, as the story shows us in a moment, Joshua's standing there looking at Jericho. He's probably looking at those walls that are 12 to 15 feet high and thinking, how in the world are we going to take that? Israel has never taken a city like Jericho before. And Joshua doesn't know yet, though most of us do, what God's plan is. And Joshua knows this is only the beginning. They're going to be at war for a long time. It turns out to be seven years of warfare. And then we read in verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, it's to get our attention, it's a shocking, unexpected thing that Joshua sees. 
a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I believe this is a theophany. A theophany is an Old Testament appearance of God. Maybe even a Christophany, maybe even Jesus Christ, but certainly God. And the reason I think that is because he's called the commander of the Lord's army. But even more, as we're going to see, the way Joshua interacts with him and what he hears seems to indicate deity. And by the time we hit chapter 6, verse 2, it specifically says, the Lord said to Joshua, I think it's an ongoing scene from here in chapter 5. And what an encouragement. Because God stands before Joshua with his sword drawn. He's about to go to war. He meets Joshua at the point of his greatest need. I love the last phrase that's on the screen. Now I have come. I'm here, Joshua. The warrior God is here. And that's what Joshua needed in this moment. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace, they needed the God who would walk with them in that trial. And there he was. When Isaiah experienced the death of good king Uzziah and he watches the the kingdom beginning to decline and fall apart, he needed a vision of a God who is high and lifted up on his throne. And that's what he gets in Isaiah 6. Very practically, God says, I will be a husband to the widow. What she needs, I'll provide. I'll be a father to the orphan. God meets us at the point of our greatest needs. And that's what he's doing here for Joshua. Joshua needs the warrior God. And here he is. Except that Joshua doesn't know it's God. I mean, he's not expecting God. Doesn't look like God. He looks like a soldier. And Joshua, unlike Moses, doesn't meet with God face to face that often. So Joshua goes to meet him. Joshua is being exactly what God commanded him to be in chapter 1. He's being strong and very courageous. So he steps out to meet this warrior and he challenges him. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And what he learns is God is with us in our battles. But even more than that, God is in charge of our battles. We're not in charge of our battles. We're called to submit to God's plans, to God's leadership. And so we read, Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Which is kind of a strange answer, isn't it? It's like me saying, Are you from Portage or out of town? No. No doesn't answer but it does what he's saying Joshua I don't fit into your categories you're asking whose side I am on that's not the right question one commentator says it really well when when this person when God says I'm the captain I'm the prince of Yahweh's host what he's saying is that God's not there to take sides but to take charge You know, a lot of times I want God to take my side instead of taking charge. God is there to lead them, not fight for them, though he is going to fight for them, but he's their leader. 
Abraham Lincoln famously said during the Civil War, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My concern is to be on God's side. And that ought to be our concern. Not God be on my side, but God help me to be who you want me to be. And Joshua is confronted by the fact that he is not in command, that God is. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. Again, why I think this is God, because the angel doesn't say, whoa, 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 don't worship me. He fell on his face and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? You are sovereign over me. Give me your orders. You are in charge. I submit to you and to your plans. And here's the first command. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. He's to remove his sandals because the ground is holy, which tells us that even Canaan can be holy if God's there. And this whole scene should kind of remind you of something if you know the Old Testament. Sounds a little bit like Exodus 3, doesn't it? When Moses sees a burning bush and he approaches the bush and God speaks to him out of the bush and says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is, in essence, Joshua's burning bush experience as he meets with God and God reminds him who is sovereign over everything that is going to happen. And Joshua obeys immediately. And Joshua did so, ends the chapter. He's a humble leader and a servant. And now, beginning in chapter 6, God will give the orders for taking Jericho. But what we see is that Jericho falls because Joshua submits. God's sword is drawn. He's leading them into battle. What more encouragement could Joshua need as he prepares for the conquest of Jericho? See, the second preparation for the battle is that we have to humbly submit to God's plans. This is a story that I have not been able to verify, so you can take it as perhaps apocryphal. But the story is told many years ago of a church organist who was getting up in years. It was time for him to retire, and so when the day came for him to retire, he he played one last time with all the fervor that he could play, and as the last note rang out, he closed the organ and locked it and put the key in his pocket. As he started down the aisle of the church, the new young organist met him and held out his hand. And the old master thought for a minute, and finally he took the key out and he gave it to the young man. And the young man went to the organ and began to play, and the old organist was amazed at the the fervor and the talent and the ability that was pouring out of him, such that in days to come, people came from all around to hear the new organist, whose name was Johann Sebastian Bach. And as he got older, the retired organist used to say, just suppose I hadn't given the master the key. Just suppose what your life and my life will be like if we don't give our Lord the key to our lives, if we don't humbly submit to his plans. How often do I, how often do you 
come to God and say, here is my agenda, please bless it. Instead of saying, God, here's what I think you want me to do, but if it isn't what you want, please tell me because I want to do whatever it is that you want me to do. See, the question is not, am I strong enough to fight and win the battle? The question is, am I humble enough to bow and submit to the God who wins the battle? One author says, we are always in a fervor to do something for God. We've forgotten that the first thing God wants is that we be something for him. That we bow our knee, that we bow our lives to him. God wants us to be battle ready, laying down our self-rule and humbly submitting to his plans. And that begins by first of all admitting that we're sinners and that we need a savior and that Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation. And if you've never done that, that's where the whole thing starts. And I encourage you to talk to me or to Pastor Steve or Pastor Jim or Pastor Ryan or that friend that brought you before you leave. Or if you're watching online, call our office and allow us to introduce you to Jesus. But once we've done that, then we need to be willing to give ourselves wholly to him. Most of you know that I enjoy reading about the Civil War Ulysses S. Grant was the commander of the Western Theater in the Civil War before he was elevated to commander over the whole army. And he had laid siege to Fort Donelson in Tennessee, and the, the plight inside the fort had become desperate, and so the commanding general for the Confederacy, General Buckner, sent word to Grant asking him for terms. Grant's reply, which ultimately got him his nickname, no terms except unconditional and immediate surrender. And that's what God says to us. No terms. Lay down our self-rule and humbly submit to his plans. Because our victory in battle begins with surrender to our God, to elevating him and lowering ourselves to accepting his will and his rule and his plan not our own our victory in battle begins with surrender to our god do you know him if you know him are you following him let's pray father we as human beings in our own selves, are self-centered. We desire self-rule. We desire to do what we want to do in our way and in our time. But you call us to bow the knee. You call us to recognize that not only can we not earn eternity in heaven on our own, but we cannot rule our lives and win the battle on our own. Help us to surrender to you, to lay down our self-rule and to humbly submit to your direction for our lives. Help us to be your people, your warriors, armed by your spirit and your armor, serving you faithfully in the battle. We pray 
in our Savior and our Captain's name. Amen.